Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. On tonight's episode of Conspiracy Normal, we'll get your host, Adam Sane. That's right. Co-host, Luke Reed. Yes, sir. And that guy who shows up randomly, Chris McCalvin, right yeah. here. We're Chris, all here tonight, we're going to do an episode of Conspiracy Normal. All Chris, right. Chris is here for like the first time in like a month and a half. Yep. Luke, I feel like it hasn't been like, It's been a month for you, too, man. Yeah, I know. Man, I feel like it hasn't been that lazy. Long. I know. Time flies, guys. This Tom stuff's flies. too much. I mean, coming over to your house and you feeding me and having to sit here for an hour, dude, it's too <laughs> Wait, much there's work. there's food? There's food. Hold on a second. <laughs> <laughs> he ate a banana. Don't, he's well, slightly over. Tonight, yeah, someone's been slacking on the cooking. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> we we, we ate it all before you got here. you supposed to be a good host, Adam. You're supposed to... Supposed to feed us. And You're supposed to have a, a beer and a bubble bath ready for like. <laughs> maybe maybe we can get maybe we can get a cute Asian masseuse in here too. Like, can, can we uh, I think that? you'd like that, Chris. I would love that actually. You know, all about some Asian girls. Hey, you know what? Girl in the coffee shop. All I'm saying. Yeah, we, 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 nobody really wants to know. Get the girl in the coffee shop. So anyway, uh, this has been a while, and uh, a couple was it. Uh, Three weeks ago, or something like that, we had a chance to yeah, about three all weeks. go see the movie The Conjuring, and uh, I personally liked the movie, although it did get a little too Hollywood at the end. But I felt as far as like the uh, the progression of the haunting and what people go through, I thought I thought it was pretty accurate. Of course, the story is changed somewhat. You know, it's based on a true story. It's fictionalized to an extent yeah you mean like the part where they all start flying around the room right right yeah 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 somebody's like climbing on the ceiling and all that kind of stuff yeah that that seemed a little bit you know fictionalized for me <laughs> and uh did have uh, interesting enough last week uh archbishop james long on talking about uh 
exorcisms and possessions. That was a couple of weeks ago, actually. But look, I just wanted to get your idea of what you thought about The Conjuring. I thought it Chris, was... Chris, you can chime in on this, too. I thought it was lame. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I did I did like the action parts. I liked the suspense, and it had me on the edge of my seat, you know? Yeah. But I hate the message that it was trying to convey, and that is, uh, you know, to teach everybody to be scared of everything occult and everything, uh, you know, esoteric knowledge, because that's what most of these horror movies I've been seeing these days just keeps blaming it on, you know. They, you know, uh, what what was it, Sinister, that mm. was, that blame, you know, occultism has nothing to do with this random box that shows up in his attic. <laughs> full of movie reels, you know? What does a cult have to do with that? Well, wasn't it like a Babylonian god? Not not to give away the, yeah. the plot of the movie. I, don't want to see I it, guess so, man. It's just it's such, it's such a loose, such a loose uh, script, man. Such a loose basis of knowledge of occultism. It's terrible. <laughs> it's nothing, it's, you know, it's, it's really just nothing to do with each other. But... You were talking about, like, uh, as far as, like, Sinister goes, what about The Conjuring? I mean, what is it that you saw? I mean, I didn't see much that really dealt with the occult in that movie. Well, I'm not I'm not uh, pinpointing the occult here. I was just saying that they're trying to scare everybody away from, uh, hold on, I'm trying to remember the movie. I could... <laughs> it's been too long. I think, I think what we're trying to get at here is, like, it, it pushed everyone towards, you know, almost, you know, archaic... Christianity, you know, and and saying basically if you're not a good Christian, you know, because that that was one of the things like the family wasn't yeah, yeah. wasn't. Uh, I didn't want to go and say cult. that, but yeah, it's like well, a- I, I'll be I'll be that guy. <laughs> I also I also disagree with the uh, the notion what that it seemed like every victim in the movie was female. I thought that was very, uh, you know, I, I really felt like the movie was trying to reinforce traditional standards. You know, the woman in, like okay. the submissive role. And everything like that, and it, it's parts of it. Yeah, you know, don't get me wrong. From like a strictly movie standpoint, you know, it was an all right movie and everything. But parts of it seems almost like propaganda, mm-hmm. just to be real about it. Yep. Yeah, he. I mean, yeah, I agree with Chris. I didn't want to say it, I guess, but I feel like they're just trying to push Christi- Christianity in that movie and a lot yeah, of other. Yeah, I'm not sure though too. that the director or anybody that wrote the movie probably had that in mind. Uh, it's based off the. Ed and Lorraine Warren, right, in a case that actually happened, and they they were, well, Ed is dead now, but uh, Lorraine's still very much alive, and they're very much based in uh, like kind of more a lot of like like a lot of Catholic tradition, so that kind of bias did did come through in the movie, but only through the characters. Does that make sense? I mean, the director of the movie is the same guy that saw. And I can't really see too many, like, you know, Christian elements in the movie Saw. Right, but this was a whole different different beast. That's not me. Um, also, strictly from a story standpoint, they never closed with what the doll played into the story. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I felt like that was left very open and left a lot of questions and, and you know. Yeah. And you know that was all that was all Hollywood too, because the doll in that looked like it's like real hideous thing. That just the, brought it back. The actual for me. real life, it was like a Raggedy Ann doll. Yeah, that's that's what I remember now. That's what it was that bothered me. Is uh, they're talking about the whole Salem trials and stuff. You uh-huh. know, make making. You know, I don't. I personally, I don't think that anything was e- evil about Salem at all. Yeah. I think that they're the victims and the whole Salem massacre. 
Well, I think it would be an interesting movie. I think it would make an interesting movie is if you had uh, where the protagonist was somebody like a Wiccan or something like that. Yeah. You know, not necessarily or or even somebody that's maybe an occultist. Uh, uh, right. Somebody that. Yeah, I mean, is it just me or does it feel like these movies keep like singling yeah, out and it, attacking? Yeah. Okay. I think that it, what it does is is that it's going. It's 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 um, tapping into kind of like those basic fears of the unknown and as there's the kind of that that's the I don't I won't say it's mostly if it's I wouldn't agree that it's mostly Christian propaganda but more it's more like a kind of an American kind of viewpoint where all that kind of stuff and mm. the mumbo jumbo and all that stuff is kind of basically evil and there's nothing really good about it yeah is that if that makes sense it does and that's yeah. kind of a horror motif right I mean, you see that in a lot of horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like oh, you're yeah, saying totally. it's sinister, you know. Yeah. There wasn't much anything really about that, Christianity in that movie, right? At all, and more in The Conjuring, but in Sinister, you know, it was more just like this kind of this mystery tale. And they they keep blaming occultism and witches and stuff like that, you know, all these movies and yeah. people people watch these movies and they see that and they're like, oh man, I don't want to mess with that and. I, they start getting superstitious. So, uh, I knew somebody that studied witchcraft back in high school, and they read this book, and they died from it or whatever. You know, it could have been some completely unrelated cause, like he got in a car wreck or something, you know? It's nothing to do with it, and it's, it just builds up this superstitious yeah, rumors, mentality. rumors and stuff get spread. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, the guy got in a car wreck, well, then he must have been messing with something he wasn't uh, exactly with, right, or, and then the superstition, kind of thing, yeah. paranoia starts to build, and it's perpetuating it. So, how would you have done that movie differently if you were writing something like that? Uh, hmm. Exercising demons. I don't know. <laughs> I've never actually read like a ritual for exercising demons <laughs> and anything. But I guess uh, if I knew how to, then I would just make some. Uh, I wouldn't even give an orientation to the priest at all. Got some strange music coming through the walls. I don't know if you guys can hear that. But anyway. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting to me, Chris, that you brought up the thing about the women. See, that's the part that I didn't even Every single victim in the movie. Yeah, it was like a family of like five girls. Mm -hmm. All the children were girls. Even even with with the, the warrants. Even with them. Oh, hold on. Not necessarily. Remember the crazy dude that uh, before, that she was working with before, the medium? The guy that was strapped to the chair? Right, but he wasn't necessarily... Yeah, he he wasn't like a main character. He wasn't like a main... You know, he was just, you know, a vehicle to show that she had seen something that she wouldn't have... And and it showed weakness in her, you know, and, and like, you know, I'm not going to come out and say, like, I'm, I'm like a huge feminist or anything like that. But it, it just kind of disturbed me a little bit that it seemed like every single victim in the movie was female. And it really portrayed females as a whole in a very weak light. And we, all know, I, we all know that uh, I know a lot of strong women. <laughs> so. well, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's definitely an element that I didn't even think of that you, that you bring forth there. Anything else you want to say about it? Nope. Well, I went to the uh, Mid-South Paranormal Convention last week, and uh, all by myself. Nobody else wanted to go with me. Couldn't, even if I wanted to. Yeah, that's all right. not just talking about you. <laughs> but uh, got to see some interesting speakers. 
mostly people talking about ghost stuff, you know, and making contacts. Uh, met a couple of people uh, out there that I'm probably going to have on the show, and actually I got one coming on uh, next time. And uh, so the beginning of September, he's going to come on. He's a ghost hunter who lives out in Clarksville. Yeah. Well, so that should be interesting. Was uh, was the guy who's Whose wife no, tried to kill he, him no, with a python he, no, there? No, he was not. He, he was not there. Everybody loves he Raymond. Wasn't, was he, he, wasn't, he wasn't there the last time either. Yeah, that was your that was your one big like memory of the <laughs> one you went to back in 2011. That and the one good-looking female across the room. <laughs> that was probably too. They young. did have the tattoo shop there. You could get you get yourself a tattoo. Oh yeah. I bet they're high quality. You walk in there and there's I bet it's some high quality work. You walk in there and there's uh, tarot cards and. Uh, you right, Chris? That was a bug. That was a bug. That was a bug. Did you just get attacked, Chris? I did. I don't know what that was, but it was crawling on my leg. I thought he just had an epileptic fit. <laughs> I did get to uh, like meet bugs. Archbishop Long, who was on the show last time, um, and quite a few other people. So. Out of that, I'm hoping to get some people on the show. So, But tonight, uh, we have Dr. Future coming back on. And uh, he was our very first guest back in March of... Uh, yeah, Last year? 2012, yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, wow. Looking for... Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. This is uh, show 35 now. So, we're going to have him back on here in the next 10 minutes. And we're going to talk about sorcery. Sweet. And I'm hoping that... Uh, Luke's gonna get into it with him. Oh, I'm I'm an idiot today, man. My brain's mush, so oh, probably man. not. It's all right. You can you can go channel some Sumerian gods or something. <laughs> you get that book over there and channel some Sumerian gods. I know you and, can just uh, find that bug. Does it eat it? Right. <laughs> That'll give you some special powers or something. <laughs> Maybe a little protein. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal, and uh, we'll be right back with Doctor Future. Yay! All right, we are back on Conspiracy Normal. Don't you say it. I'm not going to say it. All right. This is We're not back. your host, Adam Sade. We're and back. Not the co-host, Luke Reed. <laughs> We're back. And not producer Chris. <laughs> A.K.A. the guy who shows up from time to time. That's right. <laughs> and we have on the line Dr. Future, who was our, as we mentioned before, was our first guest all the way back last year. Welcome and back, uh, sir. We're happy to have him back on. Dr. Future, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Wow. You know... I guess I was wrong. I lost all those bets that y'all never survive it to this number of shows. Oh, well, thanks uh, a lot. <laughs> I, I swore to everybody they'd never hang in there. So congratulations, guys. And uh, the same thing applies uh, tonight like uh, the last show was on. This is temporarily called uh, Conspira Abnormal instead of Conspira Normal with a guest like me on. So I'm glad to be here. And I've got my uh, one of my co-hosts from Future Quake, uh, Pyro, in the studio with me, so he's going to be helping out a little bit. He's sort of like my grommet that uh, helps me in some of these things. <laughs> so he'll uh, put in a bark or a wine at some point? Yeah, mostly he, he commandeers the electronics. If he starts speaking, then this will probably be the most popular podcast ever. Well, and it'll actually uh, have more wisdom to it, too. So, but he <laughs> so, is, so is he like your silent Bob? Like, is that where we're going here? A little bit like that, or Penn and Teller, that kind of thing, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but anyway, it's great to be with everybody and all of you uh, conspiranormalians out there and um, people who actually care about things of interest rather than just honey boo-boo and uh, want to talk about things that 
not only could it have just immediate life importance, but cosmic importance. And I'm right there with y'all. So, looking forward to just chatting back and forth amongst friends here and uh, seeing where things take us. Absolutely. Well, uh, Dr. Feature, you wanted to come on tonight uh, to talk about uh, sorcery. Well, uh, actually, yeah. Um, uh, you had mentioned uh, to me some time ago to think about uh, you know, any other kind of topic that would be relevant to your audience. And I recognize that you have an audience from both the uh, paranormal and the conspiracy, hence the name. Um, and so I thought about something that I had done recently that I just thought would be interesting to talk about. And uh, this is one I thought might be of interest to uh, your folks. And it's something that right at this second I'm not adding further things to, but I will be in the future because I do think it's going to be of some significance. So um, I look forward to just putting some stuff out on the table and we can chat about it, consider it. it. To me, it's interesting. It's fascinating about the future implications of it. And uh, I'm not dogmatic about anything here. And, and I guess I should say... Uh, ahead of time that uh, since it, we do talk a little bit about medical stuff and drugs and things that although I am a, a real PhD doctor I'm not a medical doctor so um, take what I say with a grain of salt as far as anything that would be medical about what you take or don't take or what you choose not to please see somebody who's competent in the area to do that uh, I'm more of a researcher and have found an interest in some of these topics and hopefully if I can ignite an interest in the listeners then that would be something worthwhile. Absolutely. Uh, well, let's get started on uh, on sorcery. Okay. And I wanted to ask you, uh, first of all, uh, how do you define what sorcery is? Okay. What is it, your, your definition? Okay. Yeah, because that, that really makes all the difference in anything is defining uh, what something is before you, before you get started with it. Um, I have a little more holistic definition of sorcery. You know, it's something that we all think we know what it is, and we all presume we do, but we never get around to defining it like that. You know, I would guess most people, when they hear sorcery, they think of, like, the sword and sorcery movies like Conan and stuff like that, and they picture a guy with a round hat with stars on it and a robe, and he's got a magic wand, and he's making something like a Ray Harryhausen, you know, stop-motion thing that's going to go attack somebody or something. And, and there's a little bit element to that. Um, but I'm going to use a working definition that I think has evolved from the time when sorcery was talked about more back in the age of, you know, the classical age of antiquity. And look at one that's more relevant to the modern technological age we're in. And, and I'm going to define sorcery as any type of artificial means by which to alter our reality. Okay. And so that gets into a lot of things, and we now have technologies through modification of our food and our water by um, uh, electromagnetic st- stimulation of our brains, of uh, even the flicker rate on TVs and things. All these things can do what drugs and chemicals used to do. But there, there's a particular element of it in this particular talk that I put together that's a portion of it that I'm most interested in, and that is when it's used in an environment of what's called uh, theurgy, uh, when you're actually using, uh, in, in the ancient world, it was the use of some kind of drugs in a ritualistic fashion, where the intent was to either invoke some other 
a divine type spirit, a uh, supernatural spirit within yourself, or to physically evoke it in front of you, where it would either materialize somehow physically or immaterially, but something that you could detect with your senses. And, um, you know, some of the oldest definitions that have survived, uh, in fact, if you look in Wikipedia, it's just called the manipulation of magic. Um, in, in the Old Testament of the Bible, uh, the word is keshef, and it just puts together sorcery and witchcraft. In the New Testament, in the Greek, since it's a little bit more advanced as far as civilization-wise, it has a, an interesting, uh, it has two words used for it. One is majeo, which means to be a magician or practice magical arts. The other one, which is even more interesting, is pharmakia, which is where we get the words like pharmacy and things like that where you get drugs. Right. And it and its definition uh, from Strong's Concordance from the Greek is the use or administering of drugs uh, in the process of sorcery, magical arts, uh, often found in idolatry and fostered by it. So there's an element, again, that's captured even in that word in the ancient text where drugs play a role in trying to accomplish um, this invocation or evocation uh, and even a, a state of what's called henosis where you sort of connect with the all-powerful spirit or whatever it is in the universe and become one with it and, and in essence become empowered or like you're an extension of the divine or something like that with all the powers that come with it. So I, th I think those are some definitions we can keep in mind of what I'm talking about. But I'm particularly interested when people are using it uh, and using the drugs as, as entheogens, which means... They're being used for a religious purpose or connotation to contact spirits, not just for recreational use, not just to get a buzz, but there are some serious uh, spirit communication goals. Okay. Uh, and also, too, um, wh where does the sorcery, uh, where does it come from, in your opinion? What, what, what are the roots? Well, uh, if you go back, you know, and... And again, I, let me uh, just another caveat to your listeners here. I am not an expert on this topic. I have just done a little bit of research. I sort of backed into it based upon some other things I was reviewing and sure. found things of interest. So I've scratched the surface is all. And uh, hopefully these are a few things that people can go do a little more detailed search if they find it as, as or more interesting than I do. Um, but what I have seen from my writing is that the earliest stages of of this kind of activity uh, involve the use of roots or natural things that you would expect that are in the ground and that are prepared in very, very special ways, very non-intuitive ways, where you'd almost have to be taught to know to have some kind of radically different experience when you ingest them. Um, one of the things I've read is consistent. If they talk to the shamans in, in South America, for example, uh, Indians and others, they all talk about this great flood. And they talk about these beings who showed up where they were shortly after the flood and retaught what mankind had been taught before the flood about how to mix these in certain ways to make these contacts. And so um, it, it provides an explanation for why they come up with these really complicated processing uh, rituals in a lot of cases, not all, but a lot of them, to get the maximum effect of what they do. And and actually do things, like, for example, the ayahuasca. Uh, there are certain things taken in connection with the blend 
and, and, and what they use for it that actually would suggest a very detailed knowledge of human physiology. Okay. Because there are certain parts that try to block the actions, and the things they mix with it are something that medicine has just figured out was intended to overcome these blockages in the body to, to, to allow it to function. So um, that's completely consistent with the, uh, what we have in the Bible, which is probably the best preserved of the ancient books that actually, uh, you know, there's a, there's a long chain of, of that information. And they say the same things, um, that these things were taught by beings that came down. They were considered rebellious to God, but they, they came down and taught mankind how to use roots and these other things. And one of the books that um, is in some of the canon of Bibles in some parts of the church, and probably your listeners are well aware of it, um, is actually cited elsewhere in the Bible, like the book of Jude, is called the book of Enoch. Right. And the book of Enoch, particularly the book of First Enoch, is considered uh, to be a very serious text that many people think should be in the Bible, particularly because it's preferred elsewhere in Scripture, um, possibly in, in uh, one of Peter's epistles as well as in Jude. And it talks, it gives details about it. It talks about a um, particular um, creature, uh, um, I believe it was uh, Azazel, I'll have to go back and look at my notes here, but he, he actually um, uh, was involved in leading the teaching of using roots and other kind of things to make spirit contacts and things. They also taught weapons of war. They even taught makeup and cosmetics. Part, I guess. I guess it's some kind of artificial modification of natural mankind. It's all. I guess it makes consistency. But anyway, I think the, there's things about abortion in there too. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. I, I'm sure. I think I remember that. It doesn't come to mind, but I think I've heard references to that. Basically, things that would be a change from the order up to that time, or what people understood was the order of creation. And so, you know, the, uh, it suggests in the book of Enoch, and it's referred to indirectly in Scripture, that they were punished for this, that they were put in chains in Tartarus, and that they're actually in a subterranean place, presumably, if we think about it in a physical sense, uh, in actual bondage and darkness until a time when they're to be released at the end. And, um, however, it appears that there was some teaching of this afterwards, and uh, I know we can get sidetracked with this, but um, w one of the, the byproducts of these angels that are talked about in these books and talked to very clearly in Genesis chapter 6 was their uh, intention to interbreed with human women, that they actually they found them as beautiful as human men found them and uh, did interbreeding and created this hybrid race called the Nephilim. There we go, Chris. Yeah. Okay, you can check that box off now. <laughs> That's Chris's favorite subject. Well, of course, David Rockefeller was involved in it, so right, I wanted right, to right. get the Daily Double. <laughs> no, uh, anyway, um, and they, they're talked about being there before the flood, and the Bible says, and after the flood. Uh, and it appears that to a large extent they were wiped out along with other wickedness they created, animal-human hybrids and these kind of things. Uh, but... When they come back, when the, the children of Israel, it says in the Bible, come back to the Holy Land, in the spies, when they see Nephilim everywhere. And, in fact, when they go into the area, they battle a lot of them, including a king up in Bashan, which is a, an area where I used to work for a while over in Israel. 
Um, they, his, this guy's bed was 18 feet long. And there's lots of stories. The whole city of Hebron uh, that we hear about in the news today uh, was supposedly all run by these giants. So, um, so these creatures somehow existed in some manner after the flood. Um, I have one. There, there's a lot of different ways people could think what, how they came back. One of them that I suspect or wonder is that in the Bible narrative of the flood, it says that everything that creeped on the earth was killed was wiped out, except the animals in the ark, that they were all killed. It doesn't say anything about the seaborne creatures. And all of these different kinds of uh, strange creatures that were created, these hybrids, according to these ancient records, some of them had attributes of being more aquatic than they were ground-bearing. Um, and so I, I think it's feasible that some of these could have survived with this knowledge and leniency. And in fact, if you look in the ancient records of the Babylonians, they talk about um, one of these creatures, and it commonly goes by the name Dagon. Um, the Greeks have another name for him that um, I'll think of in just a minute. Think Oannes or something like that? Yeah, yeah, Oannes. Yeah. That's right, that's right. And that he actually came up out of the Persian Gulf into the Fertile Crescent right as civilization was starting, and he taught them all of these advanced things all over again. And he brought all of this knowledge back, um, which is very interesting because when I wrote in the book, the, the chapter I wrote in the book Pandemonium's Engine, I traced that even the, the philosophy and the ancient mythology of Egypt is consistent with that story. And it actually shows that Osiris, which was later conflated with Apollo or Apollyon, who was the brother and husband of Isis, yeah. was one who was killed. And actually his body was sent away in the river, basically it was submerged. But then it was able to come back out again. Uh, and it ties to an area in Byblos, in Lebanon, which is a place actually where uh, there was also reports that this Dagon creature appeared. And then, of course, he became really revered all through the coastal areas uh, along that way, from Lebanon all the way down to where the Philistines were, were temples to Dagon. So, um, you know, there, there's some possibilities that, that this would explain something like this, why th these very mysterious knowledge was able to reappear and suddenly create very, very complex um, interactions, chemical, medical, physiological interactions uh, done in this uh, context of uh, rituals. And, you know, the, another good question one might ask is, well, what, why are they done with these rituals and things like this? And the only reason I can say is that rituals and some extent icons can, can possibly function in a way sort of like antennas for for human focus uh, for human concentration or faith or whatever you want to call it and that somehow when when these things actually help supercharge it's sort of like when when you see an athlete train for weightlifting but then they're also taking um, these uh, enhancing drugs yeah. it's like working together it wouldn't do it without both of them working together Right. So it's physical actions that are going on that are focusing faith, and then any kind of thing that would be an inhibition to taking it to that level has been removed by the use of these drugs. 
and we can get further into that on wh- how it does it, what it does, at least some theories on it. Right. I wanted to ask you first, though, about uh, some of the historical examples of sorcerers uh, and some of the biblical examples. Uh, like, so w- one person we've talked about a lot on this show, for some reason, has been Jack Parsons. Oh, yeah. And guys like Aleister Crowley, which we really haven't talked too much about Crowley on the show. Yeah. But uh, what are some of the historical examples, some of the biblical examples okay. that cite, you can cite from the Bible as well? Okay. All right. Um, well, now we mentioned the shamans. Right. And when you get among the what, what are called the indigenous people, uh, sometimes the word aboriginal is used, and we, we think of people with wearing a loincloth with a bone in their nose, and that's really not fair to them. It just means the people that we know as the earliest people living in parts of the world, whether it's American Indians or, or Incas or Mayans or whatever. They, these people are commonly uh, known with shamanism, more people we would call medicine men. Some people call them witch doctors, but medicine men who would actually go on behalf of the village and contact these spirits, go be amongst them, do these rituals with these drugs to get answers on how to cure illnesses, or, or other kind of things. If there had been some kind of bad vibe going on in the community, they would go there to try to address it. Um, right. But over in our sphere, in the Western sphere, um, sorcery was practiced in the ancient days. Uh, in fact, Isis was considered the goddess of witchcraft and, and this kind of sorcery. And then her worship, really, she's probably the most successful divine godlike being outside of the you know judeo-christian thing uh that is preserved throughout the western world because her worship really took over in greece and rome and she she was the one uh, her whole story was that she liberated her brother osiris from the underworld by means of magic rituals uh and they got really strange at the end where she had the 14 pieces that were cut up of his body where they were dispersed around the world and then had to reassemble them, and then created an artificial, uh, for lack of a better word, phallus, yeah. uh, to inseminate herself and to birth Horus, who would have victory over Set. And uh, as I write in the Pandemonium's Engine book, I believe that may foretell a future future uh, battle that will be underway to actually reassemble all of this various knowledge, magical knowledge around the world, into a coherent coherent. Uh, last stand to to battle what they view as Seth, uh, or what I think is uh, Seth. Actually, in the Bible, the words are are interchangeable. Um, Hecate is a number another goddess uh, who was the goddess of magic and witches, and she was really the dark side of Isis. She was associated with with keys and with fire. Um, she had dogs and she had these uh, owl-like beings that would steal kids. Hmm. Anytime where, where roads crossed, it was considered a place where she ruled, and uh, they would leave uh, offerings for her and things like that. But she was sort of the scary side, sort of associated with the old crone uh, part of witches and witchcraft. And, and in fact... Owl-like beings that would steal kids. Right. Strigay or something There's There's like owls again. Oh, yeah. There goes the owls. Well, now we got them and the Nephilim in there. That's right. But... Um, what what really happened over time was that Isis, Hecate, is somebody using an electric razor back there? No, it's a dryer. Yeah, it's uh, okay. a <laughs> it's I a washer. Somebody found a good reason to uh, shave, which is 
probably one of the most useful things to do during my conversation. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Isis, Hecate, and Diana, um, real, or Artemis was her Greek name, they all basically folded in into a single goddess. Yeah. They all had a few little unique attributes, but they all, like one, um, one uh, um, temple for one, but then they would just be used for the other person. Even the statues would be the same that they would use for them. So um, just different names, the same culture. But when we get a little bit more in the modern area with us sophisticated Westerners, um, you've got guys like uh, Dr. John D., who was the most noted advisor in Queen Elizabeth's court. And from all, and, you know, and we have better records at this time. A lot of people writing about this, including his own records. And, and the guy who was his assistant, and he was a full-blown um, sorcerer by the definition we used. He used a technique called scrying, where they used like a crystal ball uh, to view into things, which, which I think is very similar to something like a psychomantium where you actually use a mirror to be able to see spirits and things. I think, I think it has a similar uh, use for it there. Um, and so he, he conjured angels, supposedly. That, that's what they said they were. And they gave him something, a new language called an Enochian language. And this Enochian language became a big part of the folklore of, of the magic world and sorcery world is a way, sort of a, a translated version on how to get the deeper work done was by using these Enochian keys and language. And one of the persons who took it up was Aleister Crowley. And Aleister Crowley uh, completely committed himself to diving as deeply as he could into um, contacting spirits, particularly if they found themselves in opposition to the Creator. That was what he wanted to do. And if you read his, his background in life, it's, it's a very tragic background, and it should warn all of us. He was raised in a very religious uh, evangelical home, um, but his mom and dad were, they were just abusive. And she would call him terrible things, like call him the beast and yeah. call him all of these infernal names. And beat him down enough where he finally said, well, if that's what you think I am, then that's what I am. And, and another thing he was a victim of, I, I hate to speak in defense of Aleister Crowley, but I think it's appropriate here. When he was a young man, he, he ran afoul of one of the most infernal things of his era, and that was the British school system. <laughs> he was sent off to British schools that were designed to raise an elite to run an empire. And to do that, they had to run people who, who were compliant, who didn't ask questions, who didn't debate about the decisions made when they would conquer countries, who just enjoyed the largesse of being British and being on the top end of the heap. And he was a different spirit. Evidently, he was a little more sensitive. He asked questions he wasn't supposed to ask, and they just beat the fire out of him. So he got this at home. He got it at school. And when you read his biographies, he finally got fed up and said, I reject all of it. Uh, and so then he, he sort of set his course to defying everything that his parents stood for, everything that the system stood for. And uh, this was part of his process of doing this. He, he really couldn't find anything that could be more shocking, dismaying to the status quo than the things he pursued. And he pursued it with full rigor. Um, now, he tried and studied a lot of these ancient magical texts for a long time. 
and, and I say this, and I don't want to draw anything necessarily from it, but uh, it's very interesting when I was reading to try to figure out when was the first time he contacted one of these deities, and it was actually through a homosexual encounter. It was considered um, a magic ritual. And in fact, later, when he set up his own uh, school of magic, it was considered one of the highest orders. Part of it was a, was a homosexual interaction that was part of it. So, again, I'm not trying to be homophobic or anything. That's not the point. But ju- just very interesting how sex acts or certain types can have different effects in terms of what he taught. Um, and a central part of what he did was not only ceremonial magic but the ritual use of drugs. Yeah. Uh, and, he, and he basically, he got, he got addicted, uh, I think, to opium and I don't know what else. Uh, at that time, but yeah, he's pretty much a heroin addict. Much, yeah, life, heroin, yeah. Much, yeah, much of his life, he was strung out, uh, sort of, sort of squandered a fortune that he'd inherited, um, and he's a sad case. He basically alienated himself from anybody. People were fascinated by him. They would travel when he he had his little covens in the Mediterranean to come stay with him. A lot of them either died or they committed suicide or, or were committed to a sanitarium. Um, and so that's sort of what happened with him. But Jack Parsons was a guy who came around in the latter part of Aleister Crowley's era. And the thing that's fascinating about him, and, you know, I didn't even learn about this guy until about 2005. Never heard of him, and then suddenly I hear about him all the time. Uh, he, was, he was a guy who, well, I don't know which came first. Either he had an interest in magic and then became a scientific genius or vice versa. Uh, I... I suspect that some of his unexplainable genius maybe came from the spirit world. But I, because he is really the father of the space and rocket program of America. Yeah, JPL. Uh, yeah. the, the Jet Propulsion Lab, or what some people call the Jack Parsons Lab, was, right. was created from his work, as well as the Caltech Rocket Center, which was the center of all rocketry research. Uh, in America, it's it's the only thing that that had us participate in that activity was through what he and his other guys, and he had absolutely no formal schooling training. He had no training in any of this, and it was literally rocket science. He was doing things that were unexplainable what he knew. Now, again, he did a lot of trial and error, but you get into some very, very bizarre chemicals and formulas when you work in rocketry, because I have worked in that area myself. In fact, I have some patents in using some of this stuff uh, for different, more positive uses. I also know from personal experience um, that if you treat it slightly the wrong way, it explodes spectacularly. And I've right. had that happen uh, to me on my wife. Thank goodness <laughs> not with me. I was safe in a bunker at the time. But, um, but for somehow, he had an unexplainable knowledge on how to do these things. And what he did... Before every launch, what he was known for his biographers, he did this this little ritual where he dedicated each of the rocket launches to the god Pan. And the god Pan, if I could uh, give some information to our listeners to possibly see what more about him, Pan, as best I understand him, is one of the most ancient god figures that civilization has talked about. They... Um, uh, He's very much tied to the earth. He's very much uh, similar to what in modern parlance they call the green man, tied to nature, virility, um, birthing not only plants and things like that, but even human birth, 
um, very virile type of uh, creatures. Like you had to watch your maidens if Pat Pan was around. <laughs> but he looked. He looked. That's kind of like sounds kind of like Luke a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, had your kids, had your wife. Does Luke also have cloven hooves? And horns? Sometimes he does. I'd like to have them surgically uh, implanted. Yeah. And horns. Yeah. I, 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 actually, Luke, that'd probably make you look a little more mainstream than you do now. Uh, that would actually tone down your look a little bit. You know? That's a counter effect, you're right. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but anyway, Pan, if you try to figure out where he came from, because even the ancient... Greeks and Romans. He, he existed way before all that. And the best way I can connect it is to a God also talked about even in the Bible or a, or a excuse me, a, a powerful spiritual being called Azazel. And Azazel was one of these ones that came down in disobedience before the flood, according to those records. And he had those kind of attributes. The cloven feet, the body of a, you know, bottom body of a goat, all the kind of stuff we associate with Pan. Um, and he supposedly resided in an area north of Israel. And, uh, in fact, there's a place, if you go up on the side of Mount Hermon, which is considered like one of the most spiritual places on all the earth, um, there, there is a, a um, temple there, or actually even a, a region called Penias. And Panias, and I don't know if you all have talked to Judd Burton about this, but he did his Ph.D. research on it. But um, it's all dedicated to Pan, and they believe that Pan is buried possibly under there, in that area. And there's a grotto of Pan on the side that's considered the most sacred place in you know, worship of pagan gods. And they believe that, that this creature is buried down there. And uh, I think that this Pan is actually in my opinion, the more I've researched, is conflated with this Azazel character and even Apollyon in the underworld. And that um, Azazel even comes into the description in the Old Testament of the performance of the Day of Atonement and the scapegoat, where there's two goats that are offered. One is offered as the sin offering for the people. The other one is taken and led and pushed down an abyss. And this goat, they said, is for Azazel. And people don't ever really think, well, who is that person? What is, you know? But it's talked about in the old days as one of the disobedient agents who's in the abyss. And it's like this goat, again, conflated with what he looks like, is thrown down in the abyss. And um, there's even indirect references to this person and Jesus even to me, sort of shot, I, I, I shot across the bow at him because he went up in what's understood as was on Mount Hermon and took his apostles with him and he formed the church. And he said, uh, you know, you are the rock and of this church, he says, the gates will not prevail, of hell will not prevail against it, the gates of hell. And people at that time thought that region was the gates of hell that were holding back as a sale. And as we know later in the book of Revelation, there's an abyss that's open with creatures just like this, including the name Apollyon, actually, in the Bible. Uh, it's just like the uh, brother of Isis that are released on the earth. And so there was a spiritual battle going on at a very powerful level. It wasn't just Pharisees Jesus was dealing with. And um, also at the same time, he also transfigured himself. 
where he actually saw himself in his more kingly state talking to Moses and Elijah in that same region. So there's a lot of mystery. I know I, I went off ten different directions there, but uh, Jack Parsons uh, called himself the Antichrist. Right. Uh, he did regular magical workings. He had a place in Pasadena where anybody, it was almost like a hellfire club, only it was less fun, more serious magic uh, in Pasadena where scientists who were into this stuff went, famous movie celebrities. Uh, some sources I've read, John Carradine, the actor in a lot of the old horror movies and stuff, um, would actually do the readings during their services. And the thing he's most famous for is something called the Babylon Working which was a sort of an event, a magical event that was structured out in the desert with his old friend Jack, uh, um, L. Ron Hubbard, uh, who later became famous for founding Scientology, where they were releasing a Babylon spirit into the world. And the person who helped them, they, they claimed that they had created an elemental, a woman who would help them in this, uh, she suddenly appeared in their lives. Her name was Marjorie Cameron, and she called herself Wormwood, which ties in to what we may say shortly later about how these drugs come into an event in the future. Uh, and um, Wormwood's going to play a central role in basically having all of this pursuit of sorcery in its ultimate aim. Well, I wanted to, to ask you about Dr. Future, was uh, we had on a guest uh, a few months ago who you also had on a future quake uh, a couple of years ago named Adam Ellenboss. And uh, he had written a book called Fishers of Men. Yeah. And uh, where he talked about his ayahuasca experiences. Yeah. And it's a very good book, and we had a very good interview with him. I think it's like Luke's favorite guest so far. Right. And, uh, he was talking about DMT. Mm-hmm. What is the DMT? Uh, you know, what does it affect? How does it tie into all this, the sorcery? And this okay. is going back to the, kind of going back to the, the theme of a sorcery being something to do with drugs, the pharmacia. Right. right. DMT probably is getting more attention than a number of other drugs, you know, yeah. that are there, you know. It's like kind of a, become a fad now, in a way. Right. As opposed to, like, the bath salts that I took before I came on the show. <laughs> Did you smoke some salvia, Dr. Future? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, Miley, Miley Cyrus came over and did it with me. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and that girl looks weird now. <laughs> wouldn't picture her hanging out with me, I know, but it was Well, she talks about storting cocaine in her new song, so... Oh, uh, I, I won't go that far. Uh, Why are you listening to Myers Harris? I don't listen to Myers Harris, yeah. Chris. <laughs> he does have a poster of her in the bedroom. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, right, it's right next to us. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, but uh, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, is um, it's getting real attention right now. It's had isolated, uh, keen interest in isolated pockets, but now it's got a major revival. Um, it is a chemical that is probably best known uh, in its use in something called ayahuasca, which is this this sort of foul-tasting brew that's made in places like Peru by the local shamans. And they, they mix things from various plants around there that 
are known to have this chemical. And the theories, at least some of the theories about what it does, is it may have some interaction with a mysterious gland in the center of the brain cavity called the pineal gland and do something to activate the pineal gland to do something that opens consciousness, possible spirit centers that the pineal gland doesn't normally do. Now, um, but it's been talked about for a long time, particularly the, the pineal gland itself. Um, the, 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 um, the, the thing that you have to keep in mind about using DMT is that there is something in our own bodies that normally will work to suppress it. And that, that is something called monoamine oxidase. And it is generated by chemicals in our stomach. And it will sort of tamp down. It, different parts of our body make DMT naturally, including the pineal gland, uh, supposedly, make DMT. And this MAO keeps this balance where it doesn't go to an extreme. It will also um, control DMT you ingest unless you just absolutely overwhelm it. Like Dr. Rick Strassman in his experiments, he was injecting huge amounts of DMT, more than the body could, could control. But the other technique is to add an MAO inhibitor, MAOI, um, which that may ring a bell with some people if they have to take certain medication because these same medications are prescribed to people, MAOIs. Um, and it just so happens that the other chemicals mixed in ayahuasca have these MAOIs. So they inhibit the monoamine oxidase in the body and allow the DMT to just have free reign in the body. And because of that, they have experiences that are not just like a regular trip, like people say with, you know, with heroin or something like that. It's just not a high they have very, very complex interactions with beings that seem to be very, very real. Uh, and even when they've done experiments with people who've also used all the other common kind of drugs uh, in their past, they say, this is nothing like those. This is something that I could swear to you is a totally real experience. In fact, they can even see them at times interspersed over the regular world that we're in, like they're in two dimensions at once in a way. But, but one of the, the most fascinating accounts I read of someone who took it, someone who was a neophyte, came from America to go to the Amazon, was in the National Geographic magazine. And the person said when they went, they admitted that they were an atheist. I think they were more of a, what we would consider the East Coast elite type, well-educated, you know, sort of move beyond religion kind of thing. But when they took this stuff in their in their circles and their rituals, they said they experienced falling down this endless deep hole and that there were all these lost souls moaning and reaching out for them in desperation as they were falling until they fell down in front of these three thrones where these evil creatures on these thrones told them that they, she could never leave and that there was no hope for her. And it took two other people in the circle in somehow to extract her from this. Now, I don't know quite how this works, but one of the things that seems rather unique about DMT kind of experiences is that there seems to be group uh, halluc or hallucinations. I, I don't even know if that's a proper word. Group experiences yeah. where they will commonly see the same. For example, I've read many experiences where they all see the same snake 
and snakes usually appear in their in their experiences wrapping around them and people can somehow intervene in the experiences of other people around them you know like the it it, it reminds me of um, nightmare on elm street you know where they would go in to try to rescue somebody from freddy krueger it's sort of right. similar to that <laughs> what they do yeah. and um but in the experiments that were done under more controlled conditions like dr rick strassman did uh, in dmt the spirit drug um people for example who were their subjects under controlled experiments this is at the university of new mexico who had had no experience with drugs whatsoever or even things like ufos uh said that they saw creatures that that fit apt description of what we would know as the grays uh some of them looked like reptilians and a lot of them were like insects like full-size upright insect kind of creatures locusts is how they were commonly described um and in fact when they would come back for repeated visits they could tell that time had elapsed and this is very different than other hallucinatory kind of things it was almost like they left some location were gone and when they went back under time had elapsed at the new place where they came back to things had changed they acknowledged they'd been gone for a certain amount of time but most of the experiences were not all that pleasant uh uh, a number of the people were raped by these creatures while they were there, or they had violent reproductive experiments done on them, which is very consistent with abduction uh, accounts. Uh, and, in fact, they had to form a a trauma therapy group for the people who went through it because some of them were just absolutely terrified for their life ever having it. But the thing fascinating about DMT is that the the events that I always read about people having – would sound like some of the most horrifying thing, worse than any horror movie that we would see, but right. people are strangely drawn back to it. It's like they're they're brought to the edge of a heart attack, but yet they want another experience. To me, it's almost like the fascinating, and this is something that's human nature, this curiosity that sometimes raises mankind to its greatest heights, sometimes its lowest depths, like Pandora's box. But, you know, you picture, was it the... The box of sorrow, or something like that, that's used in the Hellraiser movies. You know, the thing that they manipulate and the Cenobites come out. Yeah, I remember that. It's like people can't leave that alone. They're so fascinated by it that even though any encounter has ultimately destroyed the person who has, the fact that it's there cannot. So, I'm sorry? Go ahead. So, anyway, uh, but now DMT um, has gotten so mainstream that now there are DMT churches appearing. They've been in Brazil and other places like that where actually, you know, spiritualism is a, is a big thing. But now in America, there's a lot of them where it has become a sacrament, where they take DMT as part of a sacrament to contact these beings and things like that. So right. anyway, that's a, that's a little bit about it. Obviously, when you talk to Adam Ellenboss, you know, it was something that was a radical experience for him. And... There are other things people do that are radical experiences, whether it's going through boot camp or a near-death experience, something where they have some extreme trauma happen to them. And sometimes they can, they can attach a profoundness to it, even though they can't put their finger on really what it was specifically they learned. Now, I know a few things that the serpent that he talked to there basically said things, if I remember right, about Jesus was not really God he did not really die for your sins. The Bible can't be trusted. 
which which I'm sure are the things, some of the things he wanted to hear because he had had a very traumatic background in his view with all the hypocrisies he saw in the Christian home he was raised in. His yes, dad was yeah. a pastor. Yeah, he they did. had seen, you know, his dad would do one thing and then do something else on the side. He could also see his, pa- his dad was also frustrated because his dad wanted to be a certain way. He knew the church wouldn't let him. And then he saw more hypocrisy when he was in college at a Christian school where they were not what they said they were, and on and on and on. So I could see where somebody's frame of mind would find that to be a reinforcing message. Uh, he also said uh, in our discussion, as well as his book, that uh, he may have actually been demon-possessed during these events as well, too, <laughs> but he did not seem really concerned about it. Um, that he just trusted whatever that was possessing him, uh, and uh, whatever it did was so be it. But um, I think he found the rebellion away from his upbringing was the thing that he probably found most satisfying. Um, one of the things that's always had me uh, so attracted to Eastern religion, you know, such as Buddhism, Taoism, uh, Shintoism, yeah. is is that they uh, they reinforce that um, uh, I, not not torture. Torture is not the word I'm looking for, but uh, unpleasantness is necessary in uh, being able to develop the develop the uh, spiritual mind. Yeah. Um, so what I gather from all of these ayahuasca uh, ceremonies is that, you know, the first one or two, even three times, are the hardest. And uh, once you get over that bump, uh, the experiences become more, yeah. uh, you know, easier to deal with. At first, at first, it's like you go introverted and have to deal with all your demons and everything and all of the yeah. uh, everything from your past that you've collected, put away. You know, it's kind of gathered. And um, after the after that, I heard you know from yeah. I've never took it personally, but everybody yeah. that I have talked to said that the experiences get easier and easier as they go along. You know, and I would expect that too. Uh, if anything, you probably get accustomed to the folks in the neighborhood. Now, the people in Rick Strassel's work who said they were raped while they were there, they weren't as inclined to want to do it more. Although some people had really negative experiences and were so curious they wanted to go back. Uh, I, I, you know, with, with uh, familiarity, you develop more ease with things. So I'm sure with time you, you get acclimated to the people around. Now, I will say this, this sort of goes consistent with people who said they had been possessed by what was, they would even call themselves a demonic type spirit while it was horrible at first and I know there was a guy on our show, uh, Frank Felicia who talked about this it was absolutely uh, you know, a totally terrifying event for him and he had been raised in, in a Judeo-Christian background and in his instinct while he was being thrashed about and violently abused he called out the blood of Jesus to protect him and the even the people in the room with him, according to him, saw the spirit actually leave the room and go outside. Well, in time, that spirit sort of seduced him and kept saying, hey, you know, quit talking about the blood of Jesus. Just talk about the love of Jesus. And so in time, he got more acclimated to them showing up, and eventually he invited them back, and they stayed. And so he got a different view of them over time, even though he showed me the pictures of them that he drew. And this man was very peaceful just very gentle kind of guy. And the pictures he showed were were worse than any of the demonic pictures I've seen in books. I mean, these things had long fangs and 
you know, tails and claws and all this stuff. And uh, he, he would describe these creatures. So at some point, I, I don't know if you just get used to the neighborhood, if they have more sway over it, or something completely different. I can't say. I, I, I'm like you. I, I've not taken it. Um, all, all I can do is on the accounts of other people, but people probably do get acclimated. But, you know, on your first point about the Eastern religions that um, say you go through this time of crisis, mm-hmm. through initiation, uh, you know, it's not just there. Uh, American Indians, uh, a lot of them, I think, do these things where they have these little circles they have to go in and are under spiritual attack and that kind of stuff for initiation and that kind of thing. And, and I will ad- admit that in some ways that is a distinguishing characteristic from a Judeo-Christian view, mm-hmm. because a Judeo-Christian view is is that um, Christ has ultimately vanquished these kind of powers as far as their ability to destroy you. Once he's able to take ownership of you, you, you take on the ability to actually rebuke the spirits where they have to flee from you. Having said that, though, um, we are left, even in the Judeo-Christian world, those who practice it, in an atmosphere where almost immediately thereafter come temptations, trials, and sometimes horrible stuff. And Jesus said, yeah, you're going to experience that. It's, it, 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 in ways, it almost is a rite of passage. But it's not a rite of passage to become a change in your status. Your status is already secured in Christianity through his work on the cross and things like that. What it does do, though, is um, it improves your wisdom your ability to understand what matters in life and what doesn't. It helps purify you of attachment to material things because you recognize how quickly they can go, just like Job in the Bible. It can go overnight. And you recognize that communion with God is the only thing that has any use or utility at all. And so they do have a constructive purpose when you overcome them. But it's not so much this kind of total transformation in yourself. I think it's considered a little bit more pragmatic and benign kind of thing in Judeo-Christianity. It's almost like you're just, there's going to be some sour grapes you're going to get from the dark spirit world because of your change of status, and they're going to try to frustrate you, neutralize you. Um, don't be surprised if you get a lot of heat from people you know. Maybe bad stuff happened at work and stuff like that. Just understand that a lot of people go through that, hang in there, try to learn from it. And so that's how it would contrast a little bit, I think. But Dr. Future, I, I, Joel Osteen told me I was going to get a car at a mansion. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Well, I saw another guy who has something, and, and this is for you guys. Maybe you all can get a sponsor for your show. That's called No, no Evil Oil. And it's no, NoEvilOil.com. I saw a commercial on the church channel, and uh, this stuff they've actually taken, like it's like sort of like holy water, uh, but they have they have trademarked it so now madison avenue is now taking over the sacred of holy water it's i guess like the old medicine shows that we <coughs> so now they have no evil oil that they guarantee has been prayed over for 17 days so i think they have some kind of factory with a conveyor belt that goes by somebody praying and it circles 17 days so um but anyway this guy if you go to noevilloil.com you can see him and he's in a really really fine suit and he's teaching now about how you can take the money away from wealthy people and use it for yourself. <laughs> and so uh, uh, we, we don't we don't uh, endorse noevilloil.com. Just to uh, okay. 
You're not looking at that to be a potential sponsor. <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to ask, Luke? Wait, is, it, was that, is that a friend of the TimeCube guy? Are they, it might be. You, know, you never know. <laughs> Did you want to ask anything else? You know, you know what you could do is get some No Evil Oil as a lovely parting gift for guests. Yeah. Like that used to give away board game versions. Which, by the way, I thought about doing that for Future Quake. You all should do that for Conspiracy Normal. Have a board game version because the, the game shows always used to give that as consolation prizes or what they called lovely parting gifts to people who'd been on their show. To, uh, board game version. So we're gonna do the game figures and like versions of Chris. Yeah. Little game figure Chris's. Yeah. <laughs> on Future Quake, we'd have to have in action figures. <laughs> Be like in an easy chair with no movement except your finger on the keyboard, you know. Well, Dr. Future, we got a little bit here, but I wanted to uh, ask you about all the sorcery things that we've been talking about. How does that fit in to the Book of Revelations? Okay. All right. Well, uh, to do that, if you can oblige me a few minutes, let me give you a little precursor information building up to it. Everything I've mentioned about the use of sorcery and drugs, particularly for goddess worship, uh, Diana, Isis, uh, Hecate, all these were used regularly for her, and is important. The fact that they're associated with the moon, with uh, coming down from heaven, even in uh, the book of Acts, the book of or the city of Ephesus, the second biggest city in the world at the time after Rome was the city of Diana. And they talked about this big black stone as something representing Diana that had been thrown down from heaven. And they went into an absolute rage. There's a certain word there used for them, how they became bitter. When Paul started preaching something other than Diana worship, where they all went to kill them. Like they were just, it was almost like 28 days later, basically, is how it was, the movie. And uh, they were spared at the last minute. But this pineal gland... Now everybody's talking about pineal gland. At the time when I first brought it up, you didn't hardly find out anything about it. But it's right behind the forehead, and it's shaped like a pine cone. And it evident that's why it gets the name pineal. And it produces serotonin, uh, DMT, other chemicals. Uh, somehow fluoride and water affects it. It actually calcifies it. So it has an effect directly on the pineal gland. But the cells are like a retina, the same cells that are, like you would normally use for optic nerves and in some animals they have a recessed pineal gland that functions like another eye to see and that's why the eastern world calls it the third eye and you know part of the like the upper chakra or whatever uh hp lovecraft when he wrote his book uh beyond from beyond the actually was a machine that was used to stimulate the pineal gland and that's how these infernal creatures came into the world was through stimulating the pineal gland and people like Rene Descartes, the famous scientist and philosopher, he taught that it, it, the pineal gland was the portal to the spirit world. And, uh, and in fact, I suspect that when Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden after they had had that interaction with, with Satan that totally destroyed them, alienated themselves from each other and God and, and created decay in the world, that part when they left Eden, there was this angel with a flaming sword put in front of the tree of life so that they wouldn't go into their fallen state and then eat and stay eternally in that fallen state. Um, when you look at the words that are used, um, it, the, the word for flaming actually means occult. It's a word used 
the only time in Scripture to talk about the sorcerers in Egypt's court. And the sword is it's like a Masonic tool, a stone-cutting tool. Um, and when it talks about it going to and fro, um, those words are normally used in the Bible for a transformation process. The word's hafak, and it means to transform oneself. And when people were radically transformed in the Bible, like when this evil spirit came on Saul and he wanted to kill David, that word was used to describe him. When Nebuchadnezzar changed from a human to an animal werewolf type being uh, in the Bible for seven years, that word was used for it. So the suggestion is something happened. There was an occult, hidden, esoteric um, device, okay, that was used to protect to protect a transformation from occurring that would have one contact the tree of life with the understanding that it, it would permanently seal mankind's destiny in the fallen state they were in before their deliverance. And so I think this is what sorcery tries to do is to get around that protection. And it could be something as lowly as that MAO in your gut that's part of that flaming sword. But sorcery tries to go around it and circumvent it. Um, but um, this pine cone has been preserved throughout history in its uh, representation of contact with the spirit world. If you see on Osiris's shaft, the pine cone is right on top of his shaft. Dionysus carried this fennel stalk, or he called, uh, I think, a uh, uh, thyrsus, and it had a uh, it had a pine cone on the top of it. Even the Pope carries his staff, has a pine cone on the top. And the biggest pine cone statue in all the world is in the Vatican. And for some reason, it, and in fact, it's just called the Court of the Pine Cone. And nobody seems to find it curious why it's there, but it was actually hauled out from the Temple of Isis in Rome and hauled into the Vatican. According to the historical records I read by other history people there. Now, the serotonin chemical that's used um, actually has an effect of affecting mood, and it increases aggressiveness. And, in fact, it even increases swarm behavior in locusts. So when locusts get really aggressive and just come in mass, they, they attack stuff. It also is in the venom of wasp and stings. And what it does is it increases pain when wasp and stings come. Okay? Um, and DMT, psilocybin, masculine LSD, they act with serotonin receptors to create the effect that they have. And and actually, most antidepressants actually alter serotonin levels. But another interesting where this word comes from, there is a word that's sort of a base of it called serotony. And serotony relates to a process on how a pine cone, believe it or not, the seeds will be released after it's been exposed to fire. When, when like a forest fire happens, when the fire sweeps through, it releases these hidden seeds that suddenly blow up and make manifest. And it, it's in a way to, I guess, basically replant, restart the forest again. All these things have an important part. Now, the forehead, I mentioned that this pineal gland's in the forehead. The Greek word for it is in, in the Bible is called metapon. And it's mentioned eight times in the New Testament. All of them are in the book of Revelation. Okay? And it's described, the Greek word, it's the space between the eyes and the forehead. 
And every time it's used, it's used for sealing, where these divine beings seal humans to be on one side or the other. And it basically seals them so they're the property of one and they can resist assault from the other side. So like in Revelation 7 and 14, there's 144,000 people sealed with uh, God's name on their foreheads. In Revelation 9, the abyss creatures come out, locusts with stingers, okay, just like what we were talking about, and they attack everybody except those that have that seal on their forehead. In Revelation 13, the Antichrist comes and puts his seal on the forehead of his followers. Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17 has a seal on her head. Okay, and then finally in Revelation 22, those who maintain their connection to God, he puts his seal on all their heads for the rest of eternity. So this is a, a common theme. And in fact, it has weird foreshadowing even in our history. The Jews actually take copies of the Torah or God's word and put them in little boxes and they tie them. If you've ever seen Orthodox people do this, they tie them and something called phylacteries. And they tie these boxes right over the forehead, right over the forehead and right over their wrist. And these are supposed to be protective measures, I guess to protect their mind and maybe what their hands do. Uh, they're the exact places where the mark is given by the beast in the book of Revelation. So there appears to be the forehead and on a secondary nature, the wrist key parts of our physiology that are connected with our interaction with the spirit world. And it seems to me the, the, the forehead part is part of the incoming, what we invoke or evoke. The arm is part of what we do. I guess you could say maybe part of the evocation beyond what we speak uh, with the wrist and forehead because physical gestures and rituals are, are a common requirement for it as well. Now, one last thing if I can add. I don't know if our time's getting late here. But there's another factor that comes in, and that's something else that's even more popular today, and that is absinthe, the, the, what's called the green goddess. Yeah. Ab, absinthe is this very exotic, very unique, highly alcoholic beverage. And the key ingredient that makes absinthe is something called wormwood. Okay, The official name of the plant is Artemisia absinthium. Okay. Now, Artemisia is named after Artemis or Diana, okay? So there's a connection, again, Wormwood and Diana, the goddess, as well as fennel is used in it, just like the fennel stalk that uh, Dionysus carried. You know, when, when his followers, when they became filled with his spirit by drinking this absinthium oinos or absinthium wine, they became like the worst cocaine fiends. They had, like, the strength of four men. They could break iron bonds. Um, fire didn't seem to hurt them. And what they did was they did what, like, uh, we see in the Living Dead movies. They practiced homophagia and corporophagia. They would actually get creatures, whether it was oxes or e oxen or even people, and tear them limb for limb while they were alive. These were women, but they were so strong in so many of them. And then they would eat them raw right in front of themselves. And this is what the ancient Greek writers wrote about when this stuff came in them. And this this chemical, going back to the absinthe, again, it's pale green in color. Um, it was the thing that was used by the bohemian artists, what, sort of the bad boys of the 19th century, like Oscar Wilde, Vincent Van Gogh, Salvador Dali. By the way, Chris has this like shocked look on his face after you told him the... 
the story. <laughs> Why? <laughs> no, about the uh, women tearing people apart. No, that's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I think Plutarch was one of the uh, ancient historians and some others that wrote about that. Yeah. But, uh, in fact, they were such a terror that the Roman government had to have a special call of the Roman Senate to outlaw the practice because everybody was terrified of it. And while they were under this spell, if you were in the countryside where they did it, look out, run for your life, because they would tear you limb from limb. And you know, That's I, like zombie apocalypse right there. Well, actually, <laughs> believe it or not, I have drafted a, something, a novel I'm going to write on this, uh, on this whole thing, because uh, it, to me, this is the real um, zombie apocalypse thing. This is what history shows has happened, and my opinion could happen. Yeah. Um, but Hemingway, the castle, all these guys took it, and they said that it connected them to their muse or a spirit that would, you know, teach them this stuff. Now, sadly, a lot of those guys sort of all went insane later, and I don't know whether this this had anything to do with it or not. But their paintings that were done over it, they would show it this being a goddess, the green goddess they called it, that was seductress. That would eventually ruin their life, but it would inspire them until the time that it ruined their life. And, of course, Aleister Crowley loved this stuff. Uh, he wrote a poem called The Green God that's dedicated to it. And he, he liked to take it when he lived in New Orleans. He was in New, New Orleans for a while, which is another area with a very murky, interesting spiritual background, sort of like Charleston, uh, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he wrote it actually to her addressed from Apollo, which would have been um, Isis's brother-husband. Okay, uh, Marilyn Manson has a version now called Manscent that's actually used now. Um, and in fact, this stuff was so devastating to people that it was banned in most of Europe and the United States. I think Spain was the only country where you could still take it until just in the last few years uh, it has been revived. And if you see the pictures of it, you see pictures that were drawn during the last 50 years of the 19th century where it actually looks like an old crone or a witch, sometimes beautiful, usually real scary, like a harpy, that would be uh, you know, actually devastating these people. One of the most interesting pictures I found of it was it shows someone that looks like this green goddess being burned at the stake, and there is a woman creature coming in the clouds to her rescue. And that, that ties into sort of, sort of where I'm going with this. Um, the... Um, this Artemis, like I mentioned, is Diana or, or Hecate. Uh, you know, the Statue of Liberty was actually modeled after her. That's, right. That was written, you know, from that. Uh, and she had a temple underneath St. Paul's Cathedral in London. But Hecate, who was the clearest designation of the witchcraft side, the dark side, was known as a liminal god, which controlled the portals to the gods. And, and the symbols of Hecate were fire, keys, and sorcery. And she was the only titan, which I tie to the fallen angels of Genesis 6, and that were sort of revived in some murky way in the Greek myths. Uh, the titans were the ones who tried to take over the world, just like the Genesis 6 angels, and were banished. But Hecate was the only one that was not banished to the abyss. And so she was spared somewhere in the heavens. And I think that may explain possibly something that's talked about in the Bible. Um, but she taught the use of plants for his drugs, and uh, 
ancient texts like the Golden Ass uh, clearly conflate her with Isis. So, um, uh, if you look at modern day witchcraft, they all are connected to Diana worship. All of the main movements. If you get, uh, I believe it was it Gerald Gardner, I believe was the guy who really started the the main part of it coming back. Uh, the ancient books like the Gospel of the Witches, Aradia from 1899, uh, talk about all of it's connected to, to uh, Diana worship uh, itself. But I'm going to skip through some of my material to get to uh, the parts that I think you're referring to. But Diana worship is, is chic today, particularly in witchcraft. Um, in fact, one of them is called the Temple of Diana, one of the witchcraft branches. But here's a hypothesis I'm going to just put down on the table, okay? Um, in Revelation chapter 8, okay, and I'm taking a futurist view, okay, of this, that, that part of the book talks about all these judgments that occur on the earth, and I believe in the earlier part of the book it shows clearly that a lot of these uh, rebellious um, divine figures have been thrown down to earth for judgment. Judgment was passed in the sixth seal that was opened in the courts in heaven, and the seventh seal they're cast down, or sixth they're cast down, and the seventh the judgment begins. But when the judgment on the earth begins, and th this judgment is applied not only to them, but anybody who has shed blood on the earth, innocent blood, um, one-third of the different things that are mentioned in these judgments of Revelation 8 are, are killed or wiped out. And that one-third, I believe, ties to the one-third that we are told rebelled against God back eons before we were around. Um, but when you get to the second trump, it talks about the seas and ships being impacted, and it talks about real water being impacted where, where a stone like a meteor hits and it over, overthrows the seas and the merchants that are doing the ship. But yes, then you get, yeah. to, you get to the third trump, and, and sometimes people confuse this. The reason I brought the second trump up is that the third trump is distinctly different, but sometimes people read Wormwood as being like what the second trump describes, which is a, a stone that's cast on the sea and causes terrible destruction. In fact, I've heard people call, like, you know, some heavenly body going around called Wormwood, and it's going to hit the earth or something. If that if something like that occurs, I think that occurs before this time, because if you look carefully at the description in the third trumpet, verses ten and eleven, it calls it a great star, and the word used is aster in the Greek, which is used to describe angels or heavenly beings. Elsewhere in the Book of Revelation, even the stars that are cast down in the sixth seal opening are understood elsewhere in other Isaiah thirty-four and others to talk about heavenly host beings that are thrown down. And it gives it a name, and the name is Wormwood, okay? And it says, if you look in the Greek in the Bible, it says absentheon, okay? Just like our absinthe. And it's a feminine term. It's a feminine word that's used, okay? And it suggests something like a, a feminine or goddess-like heavenly being with the name Wormwood, okay? Now, it says that it burns like a lamp or a torch, and when it falls, it falls on a third of the rivers, in fountains of waters and the water word that's used there is called hydror the Greek word and this word typically means many peoples peoples, names, tribes, tongues and it's used even in Revelation 17 the angel says that the waters you see are peoples, multitudes, nations and tongues so if we're consistent with that definition let's look at when, when it says that this wormwood comes down burning like a lamp which is what was described for 
Isis, Hecate, Diana, all through the ancient cultures, and it comes down on the on the people at that time. And then it says that a third of the waters or the people became wormwood or bitter, okay? And it says many or basically took in the absentheon, and it says many men died of the waters or the people because they were made bitter. And the word bitter there, the Greek is pekano, which means to render angry or extremely indignant. So basically what I'm seeing here is that there is something coming down in a, in a note of a fire. It is called wormwood, and the people associated with the wormwood be- become it or basically indwelt by it. And many people on the earth die because they were made basically in a rage. It put them into this insane rage and killed people, which is exactly how the Menaeids, the followers of Dionysus, are described in a localized region doing back when they took the same stuff. Okay, Now, if you look at, at the trumpets in that passage, the trees are burned up in the first one, the second trumpet, the seas, the fourth trumpet, one-third of the moon, sun and stars cannot shine. And all of these are, are, are parts of creation associated with Dinah, Diana, Artemis, and Hecate, who are the goddesses of the forest, the seas, the sun, and the moon. So to me, it's a clearer sign that this is a judgment that's clearly designated potentially to a heavenly being that has been spared for this judgment in the future. It ends, the chapter ends at that point, and goes right into Revelation chapter 9, which is a more famous passage, where it says that the angel, and it appears to be the same angel described in aid or heavenly being, uh, and the gender's not described in the Greek, Greek. People think it's a he, but it's not said. It says that this angel fell to heaven has keys to the abyss. And these keys are used to open up and release Apollo and locusts. Now, uh, Diana, Hecate were defined as having keys. They were liminal gods to open up the key to the underworld. And so you see this other aspect of having keys to open this forward and to release the infernal, the king of the underworld, Apollo, and the locusts. Okay? Um, I would compare this to being like a satanic uh, Pentecost. If you look in Acts in the book of Pentecost, fire from the Holy Spirit came down and dwelt people. They began speaking in unknown tongues. They didn't kill each other. They actually started blessing each other, helping each other. Um, but in this case, the fire comes down and dwells people. They supernaturally become empowered, and widespread death uh, ensues. And I think what we're reading here is probably a massive worldwide human blood sacrifice. And that's why the widespread death occurs, because I I suspect what we're reading is not an incident where these innocent people are on the ground and suddenly this thing assaults them and they never saw it coming. I think what we're reading is an actual evocation where, where Diana is actually being evoked through rituals on the ground and will come be part of this massive blood sacrifice. Uh, as a ritual, and the ritual is to be able to empower the keys to unlock the abyss. So you're saying we should expect the zombie apocalypse then? uh, Well, I think there's an argument that could be made that, in fact, that could be a future destiny for it. 
you know that, that that would actually be worse than zombie apocalypse. It would be like the new Dawn of the Dead, the fast zombies, you know, that run yeah. real bad <laughs> dudes. It would be like that, not the sluggish ones, George Romero ones. Which, by the way, I had a dream about George Romero today that he was hanging out with me. I took a nap this afternoon, and I think <laughs> the reason why I had it, I suspect, and I need to disclose this to your listeners, is because I actually received payola to be able to come on this show tonight, and my conscience tells me that the listeners need to know. I, it's sort of like those corrupt uh, um, you know, uh, game shows back in the 50s. Um, I actually received a book on obscure movies from one of the hosts there of Conspire uh, Normal. And so I did take a few minutes to look at some obscure movies, and I think that probably led to my dream about George Romero. But anyway, regardless, by the way, thanks for that, Adam. I appreciate that. Hey, um, no problem. But uh, I, I do think that is what we're awaiting, but it's going to be worse than the zombie apocalypse. And the zombie apocalypse... There are only certain things that zombies can do. And unless you're really stupid, you should be able to get in a position to hold out at least for a while. Well, this is a case where you have supernaturally empowered beings who, according to the ancient record the historians wrote, have supernatural strength. They're, they're, they're sort of like the uh, – I'm trying to use as many cultural references as I can. The, the movie Scarface with Al Pacino, when he gets all coked up at the end and he's taking huge amounts of coke – and they shoot him like 800 times, and he doesn't know it. You know, he has superhuman strength in shooting. And, you know, cops talk about that all the time. If you get too much of that stuff, you can just totally hurt yourself bad and not notice it. You know, when when uh, the when the CIA sprayed LSD on that village in the 50s in France, people were jumping out of windows and walking down the street on broken legs. So, you know, once the natural protections of the body and the brain are suppressed they could hang on for a long time in fact it may even require the old cutting the heads off because that may be the only thing to keep the head from directing the body is to physically separate it wounds other until somebody bleeds out you know uh so yeah i could see a very re big reality that this could create this and it would be intentional and the purpose would be to go to an even worse state it's one thing to have spiritually empowered, you know, uh, like demonically filled humans attacking you. But that's nothing like when the abyss opens and you've got locusts that come out with stingers that can sting you for, I believe it's five months. And it says that people wish that they could die in Revelation 9, but they cannot achieve death. And... I wondered how that could be. How could you want death but not do it? It seemed like you could just take your own life. And I had a friend of mine mention to me that it sounded a lot like the kind of paralysis that happens when you have abduction events. When an alien abduction occurs and people are put under and they cannot move a muscle and these painful things are done to them, yeah. that we, it may the Bible may be describing a time where these these horrid creatures, I mean, heaven forbid women, uh, who could actually be made to force to be uh, ones that breed infernal creatures that come out from these experiments that they do. So uh, it would be something I'd highly recommend that people would take the options available to miss out on this, okay? There are ways to miss out on this kind of experience, and it will not be a cup of tea. I would not say, heck, I want to see what it's like, see if I can beat it, you know. Um, 
it's it's like those people who when the when the hurricane comes or that kind of stuff, they say, "Well, well, heck, I want to be around and see what I can do to make it." You know, and then you see their bodies floating down the stream. So, I would not recommend that to anybody. So, uh, but anyway, that's that's sort of what I see, and I think even the ritual of which absinthe is made is actually um, another way in which it is portrayed. Because I don't know if if your guys are familiar with how absinthe is done. It's a little ritual that's done at the table where it's normally stored in a pale green version and you you put it in a special cup you put a a spoon that has opening slots in it and a sugar cube and then you pour water over it and as it dissolves the sugar and the water goes into the absinthe right. it actually clouds up and it brings out the hidden ingredients that are there um, which is very much like sort of what I'm describing okay pale green in the Bible, typically shows death that comes on. Uh, and this goddess, when this goddess is called down in Revelation 8, uh, through the sorcery process, it facilitates the addition of this spirit and water, or the people, the hydros. Okay, it mixes them together, but it masks the bitterness, because it's ex- too bitter to drink the absinthe itself, with sugar. Okay, uh, so it sugars it with all sorts of promises of enlightenment, sugar of Oh, you'll be a more powerful being and all this kind of stuff. But the end is just bitterness that comes out of it. Uh, and in the in the clouding that occurs, I think is representative of the clouds that almost always happen when you have a real legitimate entry of the spirit world into the physical world. If you read any kind of incident, like when people are doing seances and people swear a real entity appeared, Usually you'll have some kind of cloud appear. You'll have an ectoplasm or something like that come forward. Um, even like these uh, Marian appearances in the sky, usually it's clouds that form. Even in movies, you go all the way back to Night of the Demon, Jacques Tenor back in 57, you see clouds that are being made by a sorcerer by which a demonic character comes through these clouds. Ironically, the same thing happens in Scripture. Whenever even God appears... He appears in a cloud, in a mist, a cloud on top of Mount Sinai, um, in uh, clouds when the prophets saw him. He comes out of the mist or clouds. Um, always this cloud appearance. When Jesus returns from the spirit world, he comes in the clouds. So there's something that forms. And I think, you know, I wonder if Stephen King tapped into that with the mist. Because the mist is something that disguises the beings from another dimension that come into ours. And they're, they're about as pleasant as the ones I'm talking about in this passage. Right. So, so, but, so, so any, any good news, Dr. Future? Well, I hope everybody's taking comfort <laughs> in this, <laughs> but the lucky people just get the five months of torment in which they wish they died. So, right, right, right. Well, uh, I will say good, good news, uh, for this is that, um, if it is a big, if you accept, the biblical narrative on what's really going on, if you're willing to consider it. Um, There is an alternative offered for people like you and me, where um, at some point, we we may not avoid all of man's wrath because when they hate God, they're going to take it out against the people who love God. That's where they're going to take it out. Sometimes their wrath is deserved because they've been mistreated, but even when you've been innocent, they will do it. 
But this kind of supernatural wrath, which the reason it happens is that if you read in Revelation, the whole point this goes on, it's not just because God likes to slaughter people. He is going after the people who have slaughtered others. He is going after the ones who have killed the innocent, shed innocent blood purposely with full knowledge of what they were doing, usually for their own gain. And God is a just God, and God does not want to turn his back on innocent people that have been slaughtered in villages around the world, uh, poor people who have been victims of invasion, victims of CIA experiments, all this kind of stuff. Uh, He says he will settle the score on both the spirit creatures and the human creatures, okay? But for people who want forgiveness, the offering is made for forgiveness uh, in a way where you would not be exposed to that kind of thing. And so, you know, that is, again, an incentive. I'm not trying to scare people into this decision, but since you asked me, uh, I will tell you that the intention is that no one would experience that, except those who insist. In fact, that process, even there, is part of a warning to mankind to turn away. And and in that same chapter, 9, it says that men refused to give up their sorcery. They refused to give up their murders and their thefts. So there is a belligerence of man that even seeing what the fruit of their own evocation does to them, and, and the torment is coming from the infernal creatures that they're summoning. That's, that's how they get paid back for these supernatural creatures they pursue, is torment, just like the Cenobites. You know, in Hellraiser, the, the people want to contact them, and so here's your thing for contacting me. Here, let me torment you through eternity. And so um, that's why, you know, God offers an alternative where you, you can get an out provision now, and that doesn't mean you're a perfect person. Um, you know, you've got bad stuff that he's got to fix for you. But um, he, he wants that judgment to just be for those people who insist upon it themselves and who want it upon themselves and to protect the people who are decent, good people. I, I assume like the people I'm talking to here and on in the airwaves who just want to be decent. Well, maybe not Chris. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> now, there's, the, there's the Chris explosion. Chris and Hitler. Okay. Those <laughs> Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I just got compared to Hitler. Thank you. Hey, I meant that in a nice way, okay? Don't take that in a bad way. But, uh, so, you know, uh, again, the point is not, hey, gee whiz, get to wipe out people. It's one of those ugly kind of things that has to be done at the end of the world to make things right for the people who suffered under these terrible people. You know, it wouldn't have been right at the end of World War II if there hadn't been the Nuremberg trials. If the people who were the kingpins that set up all this stuff, that killed all these millions of people, if there wasn't justice, you know, um, it wouldn't have been right. And ultimately, the person who can do that best, who knows the real score and keeping it right, is God. And so the, the amazing thing in this passage is that people automatically assume God is doing all these things. But what God is doing is he's releasing the protections that are there to keep this morning happening today. People try to evoke this kind of stuff today, and God is preserving people so people can have a way out before they get what they ask for. But eventually the time will come when everyone who wants out has gotten out, and then he finally he lets people have what they want, and that's what they'll get. Excellent. And well, by the way, if I can, there's a 
in fact, to back up what I just said, there is a verse, if you want to look it up, that sort of t- says this. In Second Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8, it says, For mysterion, or the mysteries, religious secrets, that are confided only to the initiate, initiated in ordering mortals. Okay, so these mysteries of iniquity is already at work. Only, in the word already, now at this time, okay, that which hinders the um, this evil creature from appearing, um, it's working even now, okay? So people are trying to evoke it until there will appear in history, okay, uh, will appear in history, arise on a stage uh, that will come out of the midst of the people, someone that will be ready for this to happen. Okay, um, but there is a restrainer that's mentioned in this passage that is hindering this one from occurring. Okay, and and that hindrance will be taken out of the way when the person who who will bring this forward will happen. And it says, and then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the spirit of His mouth and destroy His coming. So it's already said that this initiation process is going on behind closed doors and places. There is a restraint for all of our safety for a while until everybody who would ever get out has gotten out, and then you're going to literally see all hell break loose. Well, I'm edified for the day. Thank you, Dr. Future. <laughs> well, you know, we, we didn't cover a lot of stuff in there. That's just that's a little, uh, that's a little uh stretch out there, there's more when you think about what's going on in fact you know it's sort of interesting that we're recording this tonight because time will see not only just because of your show but there's something else going on tonight that will end up being landmark in the whole area of of mood altering drugs tonight on cnn dr sanjay gupta who is the main medical advisor for cnn is is coming out and having an about face about his position on marijuana he originally said, absolutely no way, anybody have contact. He's reversed his course, and he believes at least mar- medical marijuana has a purpose. So um, I, want, I want to be clear to people that when you start drawing the lines between, let, let's say marijuana, okay, which I don't think anybody has seen these kind of spirit beings with marijuana, okay? Mostly they're getting a buzz, you know. Yeah. Arenas. Um, and then you, you look at prescription drugs, which are the, quote, blessed drugs, okay? Those are the ones that are proper, okay? Even church folk will say, oh, it's okay, because a lot of them are taking them. Those are much more powerful psychotics than stuff like marijuana, okay? At least marijuana is natural. Um, it probably replicates stuff like, you know, the nicotine of cigarettes and stuff like that. I'm not telling people to go smoke marijuana. I'm just saying that when you really look at this, it gets really complicated because our culture has got things so perverted. You know, people abuse alcohol all the time. And this absence, this absence is a reliable communicator with the spirit world, according to the people who say they take it. And it's an alcoholic beverage, okay, and it's now legal. So when we, when we look at this stuff, we need to be more consistent because more people abuse prescription drugs you know, going in grandma's cabinet and taking Oxycontin and stuff like that, then, um, you know, then what's going on with someone smoking a, a weed, you know, in their backyard? So um, I, I just don't want to come across like, you know, 
oh, everything's okay as long as uh, ma- mainstream science blesses it. Yeah. You know, otherwise it's bad if you have a marijuana cigarette or something like that. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't matter. Drugs a drug. I, I don't think it's as clear. You know, clear cut as all that. Yeah, it doesn't uh, matter who's pushing it. In fact, I'm more. I'm more afraid of the stuff that big pharma makes than I am what grows out of the ground. Okay, I'm. I'm much more concerned about it because it, it has more direct effects that can break people down and have psychotic events that can can harm or kill them and other people in time, even though I will say in times of crisis, there's probably a time for even extreme medication like that in people's lives. Okay, a lot of our listeners are are maybe using something like this, and if it's for time for crisis to get you through, you know, your, your, your nerves are keeping you from doing your life, you know, it's a point. But we, I think we have to ask ourselves a question ultimately. Do we let it evolve into a lifestyle where we live a lifestyle of alt- artificially altering our understanding of reality, our mood, our, our perceptions of reality, things like that? Do we live a consistent lifestyle that way? Because it's something that we really know so little about and so little in control about that um, there, there's so many crazy things going on in the world today. And I think if we are getting to the end of the age, the Bible says that's a time when you really need sober thinking. Okay, and sober thinking because it, it says in the Bible, it says when the end comes, there'll be such bad things coming on the earth. And I think it's actually what we would call UFOs and stuff, stuff coming down literally on the earth. That it says men's hearts will fail them for the fear of what they see coming onto the earth. And if that's the kind of trauma that we are in store for possibly soon, uh, then the Bible's probably pretty smart in saying this is the time we need sober thinking. We need to be at our full wits because things will get confusing. Uh, spirits have no insistence on being honest. They can be deceptive just like people can be deceptive. And we need to have full clarity of mind to understand what's going on. And in fact, even if not that, I don't trust groups like the CIA, the people who are pumping all these drugs and, you know, either, either the hard drugs they pump out in California or, or the stuff that they put in our other systems that have been documented, MK Ultra and stuff. You know, all these people are just different forms of evil. And they want to alter our reality because they want to control us. And so that would be something that, through better education, all of us, we may misunderstand, misstep. You know, I'm sure I do all the time on, on what's really going on in this. But the fact is we need to look after each other that we don't get exploited by people who use these kind of tools for their own purpose over our lives. I absolutely agree. Well, Dr. Future, we are just about out of time. (laughs) This has been a long interview, uh, longer than usual for us. Uh, It probably felt even longer to the listeners. (laughs) Well, Chris is about to pass out. He can't take it. (laughs) He's tired. They don't work all day. Um, I I do that to everybody, Chris. Sorry, you the five minutes required. I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, just real quick, what are you working on now? All right. Uh, I'm up to a lot of trouble. Um, I have drafted three and a half books so far since I finished Future Quake a year and a half ago. Three and a half long books. Um, and they get into weird stuff. Um, a little bit more on what people would classify the conspiracy thing than the, than the paranormal as much. But I don't call it conspiracy. I call it reality. It's just stuff that's out there that can be confirmed by well-respected 
sources, and I'm documenting it. Uh, the main emphasis I have is on how we are dealing with the war on terror and the relationships of the Christian world with the Muslim world. And I focus on the Christian world and basically give them a piece of my mind that they're not acting like Jesus and that they need to stop and realize that they're being used by intelligence agencies, by governments, by people who have other agendas, economic and otherwise, and they're using the war on terror and using them as dupes to make it a holy war. And so I take a breezy 1,200 pages or more to make that case. And so it looks like I'm going to publish in a three-volume set. I've got two drafted, I'm well into the third one. And so my goal is to have the manuscripts, the raw manuscripts, done by the end of the year. Then I need to break them up into little chapters, get them ready to publish. And I had another book spin off of this work uh, where I talk about if, if the Muslims, I, which I don't believe are going to conquer the world, okay, I don't yeah. believe you all are going to have to wear uh, turbans and embrace Sharia law. Right. I really just don't picture Chris and Luke sort of willingly going along right. uh, with Sharia law. But um, if not, then my question is, who is really trying to run things? Who, who is misdirecting us to make that our major panic and fear in society? And when I started answering that question, it got to be so big in looking at the technocracy and what they do and why they hate all people who believe in a personal God be they Christians, Jews, Muslims, who, whoever believes in a, in a personal God that they're accountable to stands in the way of the global technocracy because they want to take over the position of God in defining morality, defining who lives and dies. It's based on a Darwinistic view that H.G. Wells was one of the main proponents, George Bernard Shaw and others. And I get into all the, the nitty-gritty of that, and it leads to some surprising information I had never come across and I'm, right now I'm calling it the hidden hand against the God-fearers. And uh, it gets into some all kind of creepy areas. So I hope to have that out at the same time. So if everybody can stand with it about, I don't know, four to six months, uh, I'm working day and night on it. From the time I get up to wee hours and start over again. So I'm trying to keep my stamina up uh, until I get there. And I just want to tell all the listeners, thank you all for caring about something other than the trivialities of life. Than, than just seeing what Kim Kardashian is doing this week or, or uh, you know, the, the Paris Hilton and actually caring about that. You know, and we make missteps if we disagree with each other. If we don't, we're really all on the same team, okay? We all just want to do what's right. We're subject to so much confusion and information. We just compare notes, look after each other, and hopefully the people who really care will come out okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Future, for coming on. We really appreciate it. We're Man. gonna uh, we're we're gonna have you back on when the that comes then the book comes out and okay. we're gonna do like a four hour marathon show for Chris. <laughs> oh, so, we, ought, we ought to at least get through the first chapter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, stay on the line, and uh, I'm we'll, Chris. Now we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. All right, we are back on Conspiracy Normal. Oh, yeah, we are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Chris and I, because Luke is gone, he had to leave, but uh, Luke and I are, there's a lot of information, let's real quick, Chris, what did you think? That's like the first time it's been like you and me, I don't know, you and me ever, it's either me or Luke, or me by myself, or... Do you do a lot of things by yourself, Adam? Okay, I don't even go there. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, I'm just saying, like, you know. But no, like, it was it was good. Lots of information. Oh, um, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Lots of drugs. Yeah. A lot of drugs are bad. Don't do drugs. I think that's what it came down to, possibly. And like, don't, don't do drugs. drugs. Nancy Reagan. Uh, but anyway, next time, uh, we're going to take like about a three-week break. Uh, my birthday's in there. A couple things going on. So, uh, next, uh, on September 1st, we will be back with Paul Browning. He is a ghost hunter from Clarksville, Tennessee, just up the road from us. And uh, we'll be talking about some of the cases that he's been on and like the haunting at the Oct- Octagon House in Franklin, Kentucky. So, uh, the Octagon House. The that Octagon. It's like the, the are, we, uh, are we going to like Thunderdome uh, the, or something? Do, do the ghosts like UFC fight? Is yeah, that what's going on here? They might. It's like, it's like MMA. The, ghost. <laughs> the ghost of Chuck Liddell. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm sure Luke would say uh, whatever he would say. And uh, uh, yeah, Chris, but... I want to thank you for being here tonight. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. No. <laughs> you're welcome, sir. Um, well, oh, sir. <laughs> y'all have everybody have a good night, and uh, we'll see you in about three weeks on Conspiranormal. Or don't have a good night, because apparently I'm Hitler. Yeah, Chris <laughs> is Hitler, everybody. <laughs> Baby, you wait.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.